0: Hi, David Amir here. This is For The Record, program number 1270. In review number nine with Jim Eugenio about JFK Revisited, this is being recorded on November 4th of the year 2022. And it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves once again, Jim Eugenio, the author of Destiny Betrayed, among other titles, and also the man selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for Stone's recent documentary, JFK Revisited. And also, Jim is the author of the book taken from that documentary. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves.
1: Nice to be here, Dave. Thank you. We did a
0: 25-1-hour series on your magnificent book. Uh, Destiny Betrayed, I was about to say JFK Betrayed, (laughs) that was true too. Um, In that series I said repeatedly that I thought that arguably the most important part of that book was how you showed us the media's betrayal. We, We depend on the media as our eyes and ears on the world and we're dependent on what we hope is the accurate information presented by them in order to manage our, quote, democracy, unquote. Note the quotes. And in Destiny the Trade, you showed that the media were not only not credible, but that they were active, co conspirators with the intelligence community, the Department of Justice, and the forces that assassinated JFK. So I thought before we get into the role of the media as delineated in JFK revisited, if you could review for us how the media behaved in regard to Jim
1: Garrison's investigation. Well, in Garrison's case, there were two network programs that went ahead and criticized Jim Garrison. One was specifically about his investigation in New Orleans. The other one was more about the Kennedy assassination in general, worried about upholding the Warren Commission, which, of course, Garrison was plugging holes in. The, the One was at NBC. Okay. Um, and that one we now know, of course, was approved by the Sarnoff family, which at that time owned that television corporation. Now, something I didn't know back then, but I have found out since that the CBS program. And by the way, that was the biggest documentary program that CBS news had ever uh, started and they spent more money on it than any other documentary that they ever did before. This was a four night special. Okay. Four specific nights. Okay. With no commercials. All right. In which Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather were sent out to support the Warren Commission. It's very interesting because I knew a late employee of CBS, a guy named Roger Feynman. He was a follower of Sylvia Marr. Okay? They both lived in New York, and he very much admired her work. At CBS, he decided that he was going to object to doing another one of these programs. All right, and he started writing letters to the Standards and Practices Department. They didn't like this, of course. And so the writing was on the wall that he was going to get fired. So he began to pilfer documents out of the CBS files. He would stay late at night, making up an excuse that he was working, and when everybody was gone he would start pilfering these files for proof of what they were really doing. Okay. Now, what's so odd about the CBS program is that this began as a group of reporters who actually wanted to do something right in the Kennedy case. All right. Uh, producer Les Midgley, reporter Daniel Shore, okay, and uh, two others decided, why don't we do a really good series on the Kennedy assassination instead of something as stupid as the one report? And I'm, although, you know, of course I am paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what they were saying. All right. And so what happened is, this went up the corporate ladder, as it always does in a hierarchy. And it went up to the executive committee. All right. The executive committee was made up of some very big, like Bill Paley. Okay. And Sig Mickelson. All right. And I think Stanton was also a member. And they decided that they were going to put the kibosh on this. Okay. And so they sent two of these guys Out to California to consult with two high-powered lawyers for CBS. When those two meetings were finished, okay, the point was made, we are not going to go ahead and buck the Warren Commission. All right. We are going to go ahead and attack the critics of the Warren Commission. And I'll tell, let me tell you, this is a, I don't have to tell Dave Emery this because he knows it. This is an object lesson in what I believe Upton Sinclair once said, okay? It's very difficult to talk a reporter out of his story when his paycheck depends on him writing that story. (laughs) So in other words, these guys were... Not gonna go ahead and sacrifice their, their well-paid positions in this beautiful CBS building with their cushy jobs. They were not gonna sacrifice this on the altar of Jim Garrison or John F. Kennedy. Okay? And so the last holdout, the last holdout was Midgley, Les Midgley. Okay? Two things happened to Les Midgley. First of all, his fiance got a job in the Lyndon Johnson administration for consumer protection. Secondly, he got a promotion to the highest uh, editor position at CBS. Okay. All right. Thirdly, there began to be a series of memos that began to circulate through the people who were involved on this project. This new memos, the new memos coming in were signed by, if you can believe it, John McCloy. In other words, John McCloy was an unnamed consultant On this show, not have to tell you who John McCloy was. He was one of the Warren commissioners. He had been a pillar of the establishment, at least since World War II. All right. okay, and so he, of course, was going to object to any criticism of the Warren commission. And he specifically went after Midgley. The combination of his wife getting that job, him getting the promotion and John McCloy's entry. Into the consultancy on this program, that was enough for Les Midgley. So in other words, this whole brush fire that was going to actually try and tell the truth about the Warren Commission was put out by this upper echelon technique. Okay. Uh, which consisted of both the carrot and the stick. All right. And, and by the way, and I, I'm so glad that but before Roger passed away, uh, he allowed me to write this story, which you can find, I believe at Consortium News. I think it's called How CBS, uh, How CBS News Covered Up for the Warren Commission. And it's by far, by far the most detailed inside look that you're ever going to see on how a network goes ahead and essentially uh, forces the reporters and employees to get in line. Okay, all right, and and so this is what happened. All right, this is what happened. So CBS News decided that they were going to reverse field and do everything they could to go ahead and support the Warren Commission. Now, I should. There's one last interesting point about this. They did an interview with Garrison. Okay. The problem was that the guy that interviewed Jim Garrison, the producers at CBS thought it was too fair to him. All right. And so what they did is they did another interview with him. This time they sent in Mike Wallace. Okay. The tough guy at CBS news. All right. Now the whole thing about the CBS special, you know it was really one of the worst uh pieces of of garbage that you're ever going to see, okay on the actual specifics of the war report. The NBC special was a straight out hatchet job okay run by Walter Sheridan and he got the okay and we actually have this in writing now from the Sarnoff family up at uh up at NBC headquarters and let me add one last thing about the NBC special. When the review board was trying to get documents, okay, in the 90s, they wanted to get the memos that Walter Sheridan had written while he's working on this show. Sheridan would not give it to him, okay? And you know what he did? He transferred them to the property of NBC News, all right? And NBC News would not cooperate with the review board. All right. Um in one of the memos that we do have you know it, it, Sarnoff essentially says about the operation against Garrison shoot him down okay and that's what they did of course to the point that it was so unfair that Garrison got a reply a right to reply by the FCC back in those days if you can remember this Dave and you probably do okay Uh, back in those days, you had this concept called equal time. All right. And I'm sure Dave's familiar with this, but if you were attacked unjustifiably by somebody on a network, okay, you could petition the FCC. And if you had some merit to your argument, they would give you what they called an equal time provision. That was done away with by Ronald Reagan, I believe in 1989. Okay. And then of course, just a couple of years later, we got the advent of Rush Limbaugh. Okay. So that shows you what that was about. Excuse me. 1987, not in, not 89. All right. Now the other, the other, we, in the film, we go after the New York Times. Okay. Uh, because they full out supported the Warren commission with everything that they actually printed almost the entire Warren report in the Sunday issue once uh once it was released in late September. All right. And they actually edited a uh kind of a, a precis of what they thought were the most incriminating witnesses against Oswald, okay, for the Warren Commission. All right. And, you know, and there was no you know, the New York Times, Time magazine, etc. They all supported the commission and then they specifically sent in certain attack dogs to go ahead after Garrison. In addition to Sheridan, you had Hugh Wainsworth, you know, one of the worst guys ever on the Kennedy case. From the very beginning, Hugh Wainsworth was going to support the Warren Commission, come hell or high water. He didn't care what the facts were. And then the other guy was James Phelan from the Saturday Evening Post. I believe Wainsworth was working for... um what was it, Newsweek at the time, all right, and, Ph- and Phelan was at the uh, Saturday Evening Post, all right, and so this is what you get, you know, where well, you have, uh, and this is, I, I believe, I believe that this is one of the reasons that the MSM has fallen into disrepute, because you can't trust them on these kinds of issues, all right, these big you know, earthquake type of issues that go to the heart of the American empire. All right. And it's been proven time after time that you can't. And with this sorry performance, which I've just mentioned, okay, it's very justifiable why they've lost so much confidence. All right. And so why people like you, people like Dave Emery and other alternative broadcasters and authors have come to the surface as a result, because so many people don't believe the MSM anymore with very good reasons.
0: Uh, <clears throat> Jim, you mentioned uh, briefly Sylvia Marr. She was the author of a book called Accessories After the Fact, uh, which is an ironic title in light of the role of the media. Uh, one of the things that, is pointed out in JFK Revisited was that various mainstream media voices came out with ringing endorsements of the Warren Report when they could not possibly have read the 26 volumes of Testimony and Exhibits Upon which its findings were allegedly based. Uh, but don't look at that for us, if you would.
1: Well, that it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that, Dave, because they couldn't have even read the 888 pages of the one report. Their their specials, two of them were one on NBC and one on CBS, came out within 24 hours of the one report. Okay, so they were obviously, I don't think there's any question about this today. They were obviously, and we make this point in the film, they obviously were working with the commission. All right, there's no doubt about this today. We know this for a fact. All right. And they were being funneled certain pieces of information and certain witnesses, uh, to be on their programs within twenty-four hours after the issuance of the report. Now really this is you know, to really think about this what I'm saying here. I don't think there's any any question about this, that this is a violation of journalistic ethics. You you cannot possibly have a fair and objective analysis of something as important as a warrant commission report. If you're already cooperating with the people who are putting it together, you know, and I proved that I just, cause we, we showed that this happened, but I think Barney Birnbaum, who was one of the producers of the CBS special in 64 confessed to this. All right. And I've just proved it with John McCloy in 67. So it happened at two time intervals. You know, you, so how on earth can you say that you're judiciously or objectively analyzing a piece of information when you're cooperating with the people who wrote it? You know, and and by the way, of course I don't have to say this, it's obvious, you know, the revelations of Barney Birnbaum, those did not come out until I believe 76 or 77. OK, so in other words, at the time it was being broadcast, there was no hint of this. You know, and the same thing with John McCloy in 1967, he wouldn't admit it. He would not admit that he was a silent consultant on the 67 CBS show. All right. Now, how on earth, how on earth can you defend that as a piece of journalism. All right. When you don't tell the public what you're doing. Okay. And, and obviously they didn't want to tell the public because it would make them look bad. All right. So
0: it's- now, very quickly in that 67 interview, you only mentioned about McFloy and in JFK revisited there is a clip of Cronkite asking McCloy a question, which he does not answer. And it turns out that uh, John McCloy's daughter was in yeah. it as well. I wonder if you would fill us in on, on, on the
1: uh, uh, the Swiss family, McCloy. See, and this is another thing that makes this so interesting. When John McCloy's memos started being circulating, Okay, within the circle that was making the CBS special, they were, they were, they had a heading with Alan McCloy's name on it. Alan McCloy was John McCloy's daughter. Okay. And she was an executive secretary. All right. At CBS news at that time. And she was a secretary for Dick Salant. And Dick Salant was a, was a, at that time, he was the president of CBS news. All right. So how can you get any worse than that? I mean, really how, I mean, by the way, and in Dick Salant's memoir, okay, he never mentioned anything about this. Okay. In his long memoir that was published years later and Salant was in denial about this. Okay. As was McCloy. They never admitted this when Roger Feynman was trying to get them on the record. They were denying it and they would not admit it until I believe 1992 when the late Jerry Polakoff confronted them with the memos. All right. So in other words, they denied what was a fact for 25 years to get themselves off the hook.
0: Uh One of the things that is interesting is how the stance that the MSM have adopted has perpetuated itself. One of the things that you write about in the supplemental interviews, uh, to the two and four hour versions of the JFK revisited documentary. And that is Alec Baldwin's experience when he wanted to do a program on the 50th anniversary back in 2013. And he found out that he wasn't in Kansas anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's one way of putting it. That's one way of putting it. He had a show on NBC. I think it was MSNBC. And uh he wanted to do a special at the 50th anniversary on, on the of the Kenny And you know everybody was doing them back then. I mean, I never saw anything like that in my life. The wave of of specials and documentaries and and special news reports, et cetera, that came out. So Alec was gonna do one. Except, except his was going to be a little bit different in that it was going to present a controversy about both Kennedy and about his assassination. Well, he got the call to go upstairs. <laughs> and when he went into the guy's office, the guy said, Alec, we've... Kind of reconciled ourselves to the official story in the JFK case. All right. So we're not going to be approving your proposal. All right. And that was that. And that's how power works. And I, I, I think about eight weeks later, his show was discontinued. Okay. So that's the way it works in the real world. And I've, I've given you three examples that The 67 CBS one and the 67 NBC. I've actually given you four because I gave you the burn bomb one with the 1964 CBS special that was issued within 24 hours of the Warren report. So this is this is the way power works in the MSM. Don't anybody don't don't anybody tell you any different. Okay, that's the way it is.
0: Uh, you mentioned Tom Brokaw in the supplemental essays. He is, of course, very well known for being one of the voices of truth in our mainstream media, and he had a two-word statement. I believe it was to Alec Baldwin. Wonder if you would uh, reiterate that for us.
1: No, no. It was the John Barber.
0: Oh, okay. okay.
1: Okay, John Barber, of course, used to be – uh uh A a big, a big wheel at NBC. He had a show, Real People, all right, for about three years. And John was an acquaintance and a friend and an admirer of Jim Garrison, and and he has these hours upon hours of interviews that he did with Jim Garrison, and some of it is in the video, the Garrison tapes. And so when he heard Tom Brokaw was going to do something for the fiftieth. Okay, he got in contact with him and said, Tom, I've got all these interviews with Jim Garrison. Do you want to use look at some of them so and use some in your show? (laughs) He got a very succinct reply. Okay, three words. No Garrison, John. (laughs) And I didn't even want to look at the stuff.
0: I think that is tragically representative of the situation uh, as it existed in 1963, as it existed in 1967, as it existed in 2013, and frankly, as it exists today. Uh, Jim, in JFK Revisited, you present some of the information or really disinformation that was communicated to the public by one of our most significant glossy magazines, and that was henry luce's life magazine uh, although i don't recall offhand it being mentioned in j f k revisited it was life that got the Sepruger film and then published. Still frames, uh, rearranged and in some cases, uh, excised. Uh, before we get to, uh, the, the wonderful pictures of Lee Harvey Oswald as presented in Life, I wonder if you would, uh, briefly review, uh, Life and the Zapluder film for us, cause that's an important... Okay, the, the,
1: the, this is a very fascinating story. Okay, I mean, unbelievable when you, when you really think of it. There, of course, was, When the word got out that there was this 8-millimeter film from this dress manufacturer, Abraham Zapruder, more than one media representative wanted to buy it, of course. Dan Rather was one of them, all right? And so they screened it, and CBS came in way too low, okay? I mean, Zapruder, once they saw the film... So Pruder knew what he had, okay, by far the best film of Kennedy's assassination that there was, all right? And so after he rejected the CBS offer, which I think was like $10,000 or something, all right, um, he decided to hold off for a day until he could hear from Dick Stolley, who was the Life magazine regional manager down there. All right. And Staly came in with, if you take a look at the whole transaction, all right, um, which ended up being film and print rights, it was, I believe, something like $150,000 for the whole thing. Okay. Now, once Life Magazine had the Zapruder film, you know, there's no other way to say this. They lied about what was in the film. And they lied in two different ways. One by commission and one by omission. On the commission one, Paul Mandel wrote a story. I believe it ran like in early December of 1963. Because the word had gotten out that how could Kennedy receive a bullet from the front of his neck if Oswald was behind him, okay? That was one of the first things, of course, because Malcolm Perry said three times on the day of the assassination from the Parkland press conference that it appeared that the anterior neck wound was one of entrance. And so this became one of the serious problems that, say, Mark Lane wrote about in his early... Uh, his early defense brief for Lee Harvey Oswald. So what does Paul Mandel do? Paul Mandel, and remember, life was huge back then. Life, I believe, had like seven or eight million subscribers back then. All right. Paul Mandel writes that in the film, you can see that Kennedy turns around towards a Texas School Book book Depository building. And this is how he got shot in the throat from Oswald. Oh, my God. Talk about mind-boggling. Of course, everyone listening to this show, and Dave, and me, have seen the Zipruder film. And there's no instance in that film that anything like that, or close to it, happens. All right. So this was a blatant lie. And I'm sorry. I don't, I don't believe that Paul Mandel and his editors didn't know it was a lie. Okay. You're not going to tell me they had the, they paid $150,000 for this movie, the equivalent of like 1.5 million today and they didn't watch it. Okay. I, I just don't believe that. All right. Okay. And then later on, when they did various memorial issues, like in the first anniversary for 64, like the third anniversary for 66, they edited the frames that they showed in the film to avoid, and talk about consciousness of guilt, to avoid the tremendous backward motion of Kennedy where he is propelled backward in his seat to the point he almost bounces off the back of the seat with such force. All right. They made sure that, and one of the times what 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 they had to do, one of the frames slipped and they caught it and they recalled the issues and they reset the print mechanism. Back in those days, it's not anything like you have today. Back in those days, you actually had to put the plates in a printing press. You know how much it costs to break that down and do it all over again? Okay, but they would have rather done that than to let them go ahead, the public see the truth that was in the Zapruder film. That's how bad Life Magazine was. Then, and here's the capper to this story. When Robert Groden showed a copy of the film that he had gotten from his boss, Moses Weitzman, who actually worked for Life Magazine, okay? And he showed it two or three times, and the buzz started circulating about it. And it got to Geraldo Rivera, who had his show, I think it was called Night America, on ABC. And so Rivera asked to see the film, and Groden showed it to him. And Rivera said, we got to show this. I mean, this has been kept a secret. You know, we have to show this. And he made it clear that if ABC stopped him from showing it, he would call a press conference the next day and tell everybody what really happened and show the film anyway. All right? And so they decided they couldn't fire him <laughs> because of that. And so he went ahead and showed the film. I believe it was in the summer of 1975 with Dick Gregory and Groden. Now, anybody who was around back then, which you were, okay, Dave, okay, knows the sensation, the almost electric current that went through America the night that film got shown on TV, because everybody's thinking, wait a minute. How the hell does Kennedy's body rocket backward when Oswald is supposed to be behind him? And why did Dan Rather lie about this? Because if you remember, Rather, after he screened the film, got on TV and said that Kennedy's head goes violently forward, you know, which is a pile of bullshit. But this shows you how big this lie was, all right? And so the sensation that that screening of the film caused, all right, propelled Congress to start a new investigation of the JFK case, which ended up being called the House Select Committee on Assassinations. That's how powerful that piece of evidence was, and that's why I think Oliver Stone showed it repeatedly in the film JFK in 1991. And if you remember, he has Garrison, played by Costner, Kevin Costner saying repeatedly, as he shows it repeatedly, back and to the left, back and to the left, back and to the left, <laughs> which that was probably one of the most effective scenes in the entire film.
0: Well, it was, <laughs> and the... Uh... A couple of points of information uh that really are background uh, considerations, one of the top people at life at that point in time was a guy named c d Jackson, who had a long history of psychological warfare working with the government, so he was basically a high high placed Long-standing national security opportunity. And Henry Luce himself, the owner of Pond Life, was an admirer, an open admirer of Mussolini to give you an idea of mm-hmm. uh, the general perspective that they had. Um, there is a, well, famous, uh, a well-known cover uh, of Life magazine featuring a really bizarre photograph, quote-unquote, of Lee Harvey Oswald, with the weapons that he allegedly used to kill J.D. Tippett and President Kennedy. Uh, Before getting into discussion of the rifle itself and its physical characteristics, uh, there was a fascinating detail in JFK, Revisited, and this it would be wonderful if if we could get Lieutenant Columbo, or, um, <laughs> one, or some some TV detective Sherlock Holmes, or somebody. And I uh, say Lieutenant Columbo, I'm going to make a fool out of myself by attempting to impersonate the late Peter Falk, but he might have said, "Oh." It's just one thing. I'm sure there's a perfectly logical explanation. Uh, in the various pictures of Lee Harvey Oswald carrying, holding a weapon, the wedding ring is on different fingers in the different pictures. Again, I'm sure there's a, a perfectly logical explanation. And by the way, my wife is a big fan of Life magazine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about uh, a different kind of ring cycle did.
1: Yeah. See we we showed this in the film and Brian Edwards, who used to be a police investigator, discussed it. Okay. Uh, back in those days, um, when the Warren Commission report was issued, all right, there were three different copies of the film, all right. Of of the of the photos, excuse me, not film, photos. All right. And when you put them next to each other, you can see that the ring on Oswald's hand switches, in the last one I believe it is, from the right to the left hand. Now, why on earth, if such was the case, sure looks like it, you know, why on earth would Oswald, say? Uh hold everything. I want to switch the ring from this hand to this hand. <laughs> okay? And by the way, I can't take credit for that. I can't take credit for that. That There was a guy on Greg Parker's uh, forum down in Australia to reopen the Kennedy case who first noticed that. I wish I could have taken credit for it. Now, there's another problem also, which we didn't put in the film, which I wish we would have done. The differing chins Okay, in and by the way, even the House Select Committee pointed this out. You know, in the backyard photographs, Oswald has a pretty much a square chin, but the real Oswald didn't have pretty much of a square chin. He had more of a pointed chin. So when people start talking about these photographs that they've been, you know, the House Select Committee said they were okay and everything, you know, the House Select Committee did not do this kind of analysis on it. And that's even before we talk about the rifle, which is probably the worst part of the whole thing. Okay, we'll,
0: we'll get into the rifle in just a second. I just want to point out briefly and in passing, although it was not mentioned in the film, the shadows in those pictures of, quote, Oswald, unquote, go in different directions, which cannot happen. As some wags have said, that could only happen in a solar system that has more than one sun, although never having been in one, I can't I'll say for sure. And also, in, in at least one version of it, Oswald's Bobby is tilted at a really weird angle. I yes. mean, it's just a really strange, quote, photograph, unquote, and I think even an amateur could see that it had been doctored. Now, uh, the rifle itself, some of the points of discrepancy that are highlighted in JFK Revisited, the length of the rifle that Oswald ordered, and the mounting of the sling on the rifle. And there is considerable variance in what should be a single consideration.
1: Well, okay, those two points you just mentioned. The rifle that Oswald was supposed to have ordered is classified as a 36-inch in length carbine rifle, okay? The rifle that the Warren Commission says was recovered at the scene of the crime was a 40.2-inch short rifle. And it was also significantly heavier. All right? Now, that was never explained. And the Warren Commission knew there was a discrepancy. All right? But they never explained the difference in the two rifles, which I believe is unconscionable. All right? And then on the other hand, there is the whole thing about the sling. All right? And... In the, in what looks, what, it, what it looks like in the backyard photographs is the sling is mounted from, be, from below. But if you take a look at the rifle that's being carried out, and we, I think we put a picture of this in there, the rifle being carried out of the Texas school book depository. It's a side mounted sling. And what makes it even more unbelievable is if you look at that picture, you, of course you can freeze it on your on your recorders when you're watching it. Take a look at the rear mount. The rear mount is actually, it's not a ring. It's actually screwed in to the, to the back end of the rifle. All right. That's how weird this situation is. There's never been any explanation of Oswald ever taking that rifle to any kind of gun shop and having it altered like that. Okay. So these are some of the, and I can go on the, the, the whole story about this rifle and this, I'm, I'm so glad Oliver had the guts to include this in the film. And, uh, because I wrote up a special section on this for him. And, and what we did is we wanted to cue it off Tom Brokaw's a uh, cross examination of Marina Oswald. All right. Because he says it's, it's his rifle. And so, and so I wrote up a following line in, in the original script that says, you know, is what Brokaw's saying true or is it just a shibboleth that's been passed on year after year because nobody's wanted to question whether or not that was really the rifle that he ordered. So I'm very glad that Oliver included that. And I think it's a very, very important piece of evidence. Just one last thing I'll say about this. The official story says that Oswald mailed a money order, okay, one morning from a Dallas uh, post office, the main post office on Evray Street. And he mailed it to Chicago, which is about 950 miles away. And it went through the sorting at the main post office in Chicago to the local post office, okay? And then they sent it to Klein's. It went through a sorting at Klein's because they sorted according to cash, money orders, checks, and then in-state and out-of-state. And then it was walked over to their bank, and it was deposited. Now, this whole entire transaction, if you believe the one commission took less than 24 hours. I'm telling you, I, 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 I can't even mail a letter in LA that gets to its destination in one, in one day, let alone have the money transferred, walked over, deposited and in that company's uh, in that company's coffers. But we're supposed to believe that this transaction, which took several steps and 950 miles, okay, took less than 24 hours. I, I just find that very, very, very hard to believe. And it's another thing that the Warren Commission never batted an eyelash over. Uh,
0: another thing that's interesting, Jim, and that is that the post office box to which Oswald had the rifle mailed, Was listed for an AJ Hiddell, Alec Hiddell. And that creates a problem in and of itself. (laughs) That's
1: another, that's another very serious problem. Okay. Because when Oswald ordered the rifle, he ordered it under this name of Alec Hiddell. All right. And so the post office had a rule and it's printed right in the post office guide that you will not deliver a piece of merchandise or a letter to a post office box unless it is in that person's name. Okay. So in other words, what should have happened in this case is that the rifle should have never got to the post office box. It should have just been sent back to clients. All right. Because it was in the wrong name. Now, Okay, let's bend over backwards. Let's bend over backwards and let's give some of the benefit of the doubt to the Warren Commission story. If Oswald was going to pick up that rifle, he would have had to prove that he was both people, Oswald and Heidel. This would have been probably gone up to the supervisor level and he would have had to shown both IDs. Now, and then he would be given this four-foot box that has Mark Klein's rifles in it, okay? Now, Dave, wouldn't somebody have remembered that on the day of the Kennedy assassination? If that really happened, you would think the people involved would have jumped out of their seats and said, my God, I gave that guy that rifle. All right. But nobody remembered anything like that happening. You won't find one witness at the Evray street post office that will, that said he gave the rifle to Oswald. And there's uh, three or four other things to go into, but I, but I think we made the point that this had been, I'm, I, that's why I said, I'm so glad Oliver put it in there. This had been blindly accepted for way too long.
0: One of the things that is so striking about the entire purchase of the the weapon by, quote, Oswald, unquote, and this is pointed out by the narrator in the documentary, at that point in time, in Texas, you could walk into a sporting goods store, any store that carried firearms for sale, and buy one over-the-counter paying cash and without producing I.D.? That raises some very interesting questions. Develop that for us, Jim.
1: Yeah, okay. And by the way, you can see this in the Steve McQueen, Ali McGraw movie, The Getaway, okay, which is a pretty good picture if you haven't seen it, directed by Sam Peckinpah. McQueen goes right in to a gun shop, okay, doesn't show anything, pays for the shotgun. And the shells, okay, and then takes it outside and starts shooting up a police car. Okay, so there, that's in 1971. Okay, so why on earth, (laughs) and you really got to wonder, you know, did the Warren Commission not even think of this? Why on earth, if you were going to use this rifle to do what the Warren Commission said, in other words, go ahead and and shoot Kennedy and wound Connolly. Why would you put a name, an address, a PO box, even if it was an alias? Okay. Which they could have found out about because when Oswald got arrested in that summer in New Orleans, okay, the FBI was on to this fact. Okay. All right. So why, why would you do something like that if you could have just gone ahead and left no trail at all by just paying cash over the counter? All right. Okay, I mean, again, this is another thing that you know I don't believe got as much attention as until Oliver did it in his nineteen ninety one feature film.
0: Uh, it, it is a very interesting point, and there are sort of two levels of cover-up about Oswald. One, that he was a Connie, and we've spoken about that. And the other was that he wanted to generate publicity. And, uh, why he, if, if he were doing this for a cause, why he would, uh, attract attention to himself by uh, purchasing a mail order weapon, is something that is worth noting uh, Another thing, Jim, too, in the film You have actual footage Of the way Oswald responded To reporters And what he said when he was asked If he killed the president
1: And and he, and he said no And he said no, I didn't shoot anybody And then when they started asking him Well, you know, why are they Because I work in that building that's the reason they arrested me. And then he said, we got, he got really flustered. And as, and you can see so memorably, you know, he says, I'm just a patsy. Truer words, truer words were never spoken. And Oswald began to realize this. Okay. When he was being shuffled around in the hallways of the Dallas police department, you know, that everybody against him, everybody accusing him of this crime. And he says, I'm
0: just a patsy. Uh, indeed. Uh, Jim, we've got about seven or eight minutes left in the interview. And uh, moving now from discussion of the rifle and the circumstances under which, quote, Oswald, unquote, obtained the rifle to the actual, quote, sniper's perch, unquote, in JFK Revisited there is footage of how the rifle and the three cartridges allegedly ejected from it were found. And that in and of itself is noteworthy. Develop that for us if you would. All
1: right, this is, again, I'm very glad that Oliver put this in the film. All right, because Tom Allier, who was a noted reporter and photographer in Dallas at that time, Worked for a local TV station. He was the first civilian up on the sixth floor. All right. We've all seen the official photographs of the shells that are scattered on the sixth floor. All right. I'd say there's maybe 15 or 20 feet between all three of them. And so Tom Elia, when he saw those pictures, sent, no, that's not the way they were. They were within a handspan span of each other, maybe a hand towel. Okay, but they weren't scattered like that. He said, I believe he says, Will Fritz picked them up and then he dropped them. And that's where that picture comes from. And by the way, he's not the only one who said that. Luke Mooney, who was one of the early policemen up on the sixth floor, told out to Mary Farrell in the nineteen seventies. So we have it from her and him also, okay. And so this begins. When when you get get confronted with evidence like this, you begin to see just how bad the Dallas police, you know, really were, and they were they were really pretty bad. Okay, I I have to... And then, if, well, we can go into several other things there. I'll let you lead me on. But it was really a tragedy that the Warren Commission essentially accepted what the Dallas police produced, even though their performance got capped off by Jack Ruby shooting and killing Oswald while they were literally arm in arm with the intended victim. <laughs> so...
0: And, and, and uh, uh, later this is, uh, something that like, I, well, not really a digression, but when, uh, Ruby was finally interviewed by the Warren Commission on June 7th, 1964, in Dallas, Texas, in the company, in the president, not only Earl Warren, but Gerald Ford, who later became vice president and president, uh, Uh, Arlen Spector, the author of the magic bullet theory, just how magical that bullet was. It appears that there was more than one magical bullet. We'll get into that (laughs) in our next program. And also Leon Jaworski, best known as Watergate special prosecutor, but also uh, a member of the Texas Court of Inquiry, in response to a question by Gerald Ford, who after Ruby said to Warren that, and you know, I'm paraphrasing slightly, that he had been told, meaning Warren had been told, that Ruby was part of a conspiracy or a plot. Uh, Ford says, quote, by that do you mean the plot of Oswald, unquote? And Ruby... <laughs>
1: That's a good one.
0: <laughs> well, then Ruby says, quote, and this is verbatim, I'm trying to tell you that I'm part of a plot to silence Oswald, unquote, that under oath to the Warren Commission, and it couldn't be more unequivocal. Uh, back to the sniper's nest, or where that belongs in quotes, Jim, uh, again, when, when when a rifle ejects spent cartridges, it, it shoots them all over the place. They would not have been found way out uh, in uh, a meat, well, very close to one another as, uh, reporter Tom Allier saw them. And we've got just, well, you know what? We've got just a couple of minutes here. Um,
1: by the way, we... I mean, maybe I should say this again. When the FBI tested this, when the FBI tested this, they, they went up there and they went ahead and started, they said, look, some of these shells were 41 feet Away from the rifle when they stopped rolling. Okay. So what you just said is absolutely true. It's ridiculous that they would all be within the space of about a a hand towel. That's just preposterous.
0: Well, it, it obviously indicates, uh, that, well, we all are in Kansas. <laughs> anymore. Uh, Jim, we've got just a couple of minutes left. I want to mention that I'm doing a Patreon site now, and we are doing bi-weekly, monthly, uh, bi Zoom Q&As, and on November 20th, the Sunday before the anniversary of the assassination, uh, my present guest, Jim DiAgemio, is going to be a guest from 1 to about 2.30 on the Zoom Q&A on Patreon. So this will be a chance for the audience to interact directly with Jim. Uh, Jim, tell us about, uh, Black Ops Radio. Tell us about KennedysandKing.com and also where people can get the DVDs, both the two hour and four hour version and the book JFK Revisited.
1: Alright, Um KennedysandKing.com is, I'm the editor and publisher of that website. Deals with all four assassinations of the sixties. JFK, Malcolm, RFK, and King. Alright, reviews and articles. The, I'm a semi-regular on Leno Sanek's, uh, black op radio show out of Vancouver. The DVD, which if you can believe it, it's back in the top 10 again. <laughs> okay. It's back. Uh, maybe it's your show, Dave. All right. Uh, you can get that at Amazon.com. Okay. You can get, it's all three, you know, the, uh, four, the two hour and the, uh, commentary one. And in the book, you can get at Abbey Books. It's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. You can get it at Abbey Books or you can get it at Barnes & Noble or you can get it at Amazon. And the, the book contains both screenplays with footnotes and also what was cut out of the film, about 200 pages of interviews from 30 witnesses.
0: All righty. Well, this is all we have time for. We will continue the discussion in our next interview. This concludes for the Record Program, number twelve hundred and seventy, interview number nine with Jim Di Eugenio about JFK revisited. This is being recorded on November fourth of the year twenty twenty-two. On November fourth, Jim Di Eugenio saying, "Thanks for listening."